Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm Adam Proctor, your host as always. Joining me on the program this week is Lee Phillips. Lee is a science writer. Some of his uh, articles have appeared in Nature, The Guardian, The New Statesman, Jacobin, Scientific American, amongst many other outlets. We're going to be talking about socialism and ecology. He has a book out from uh, Zero Books from a couple of years ago, still highly relevant today. It's called Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Porn Addicts. We're going to be talking about the eco-socialist movement, the uh, green anarchist movement, and we're going to be talking about some uh, hot debates that were circulating on parts of the left last year, the more nerdy, dusty left between the Anthropocene versus the Capitalocene. And if that means absolutely nothing to you, have no fear because we're going to break down the stakes of these debates and why they matter. I was really excited to have Lee on. Not only is Lee an incredible intellect, he's a friend of the show, and uh, a really uh, he's, he's very invested in the project of uh, Dead Pundit Society. He's, he's one of us. And uh, nonetheless, he has a, a scientific background. Being a science writer, he's the kind of guy who can really set us straight when we start to play fast and loose with scientific categories. And you're going to see many times throughout the episode uh, where that plays out, where it's really important that our analysis on the left is grounded by uh, rooted and proper science. You know, surprise, surprise. Lee also has a forthcoming book that he is co-authoring called The People's Republic of Walmart. And so we're going to talk about socialist planning. That's a very provocative title. We're going to talk about how the logistics revolution uh, ushered in by the likes of Walmart can be appropriated by socialists in our effort to plan a better society. Uh, Most of that is going to show up on the B side of this episode. As most of you know by now, My patrons have access to those B-sides, so head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits to access my B-side with Lee Phillips, among all of the other B-sides and bonus episodes that you will find over there on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Join for $5 a month and get access to lots of really great stuff. There's hours and hours and hours of bonus uh, Dead Pundit Society over there, so if you are amongst the... (laughs) The sick-minded who have just consumed every episode that I have on offer here on the free version of the show, head over to Patreon for more of my obnoxious voice and my brilliant guests. So, uh, this episode was recorded in early December when much of the U.S. South had received uh, snow. It's odd for places like Atlanta, Georgia to receive snow at all, and it's certainly even more odd to get it as early as December. And that was the case then. And uh, there were also uh, some terrifying wildfires that were the raging uncontrolled on the West Coast of the United States during this time. So we talked about that in relation to global warming, about how the right tries to deny it, and about how the left makes bad arguments to try to prove it. But here we are in early 2018 when I'm releasing this episode, and we have seen uh, you know swaths of the the, the United States 
and uh, parts of uh, the UK and even France, I'm told, and, and places that are just getting a lot of snow that are not used to it. And so the same old schmucks, uh, Donald Trump, the schmuck in chief, has uh, recently come out on Twitter to uh, once again confuse the difference between climate and weather, trying to say that the snow disproves global warming. So we're going to get down into that discussion, Lee and I. So it's about a month old, this interview is, but it's, you'll, you'll, you'll see that it's still highly relevant to things that are, that are live in the news cycle today. So with that preface uh, sort of behind us, let's move on to the interview. It's a good one. It's a long one. Stay tuned, folks. You're not going to want to miss it. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Lee Phillips. Lee is a science writer. Uh, You can see uh, some of his work in Nature, Scientific American, and New Scientist and Science Journal, among others. Uh, His first book is called Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts. That's out of zero books in 2015. He has an upcoming book. Uh, that's going to be co-authored. It's going to be called uh, People's Republic of Walmart, a really provocative title that's out from Verso Books in fall 2018. Lee, thanks for joining us on the Dead Planet Society. Glad to be here. So that People's Republic of Walmart, man, that's a really provocative title. We're going to be getting, <laughs> we're going to be getting back to that. You're going yeah. to be uh, rustling are, some uh, jimmies. Rustling quite a few jimmies, man. I mean, uh, we were talking before we uh, I pressed the record button. Like, I think my show should be called like the very bad leftist uh, podcast. Problematic leftists. And you are the problematic leftist par excellence <laughs> when it comes to these debates about socialist ecology, about uh, you know the Anthropocene and all of these other types. I am of, a shill for Monsanto. You love Monsanto. How much is Monsanto <laughs> paying you actually right uh, now? If only, on they would. if only they would. Yeah. If I could get some of that Monsanto money, that would be fantastic. Be sweet. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna explain all of this. If you're like anthropo, what the fuck are these guys talking about? It's all gonna make sense very shortly. But, but I'm a little embarrassed, Lee. I'm okay. a little embarrassed that I brought you on the show show to talk about climate change because here we are at the beginning of December, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's snowing in Texas. Right. Yeah. So that means that climate change isn't isn't real. It means it's not yeah. a thing. Yeah. Right? Isn't that what that means? Isn't that what uh, I mean? There's snow in Atlanta, right? Okay, so we, we what we've got to have to, what we've got to be able to do is to separate <laughs> the the distinction between weather and yeah. and climate change. Impossible, impossible. That can't be true. So we're looking at the you know the overall changes over time, uh, right, the, right. sort of the long uh, uh, you know epochs, basically. Um, whereas with, you know, day to day, um, the, the weather that you face is highly, highly variable, highly, high, thank you. Yeah. Highly variable. Um, yeah, I, yeah. so it's the same on both sides. So for example, um, snow uh, this, you know, the early December in Florida or whatever it happens to be. I, I mean, I've seen on Twitter people saying, ah, oh, so-called global warming, um, <laughs> Uh, that's, so much for that. So much for global science. warming. But on the other side as well, um, uh, greens and and the left uh, can often say, ah, you know, wildfires. The, you know, the wildfires that we saw in in British Columbia, where I live, this summer, which uh, put out more greenhouse gas emissions uh, just over a few a space of a few weeks uh, than the entire province puts out over the course of a year. So, and 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 immediately assuming that this is caused by climate change. 
Um, we know for sure that uh, as the uh, as the planet warms, uh, that there will be an increase in the amount of um, uh, extreme weather events. There will be an increase in the number of wildfires, the extent of wildfires, the intensity of wildfires. But we can't at any point say that this one particular event is caused by climate change. And just in the same way that we can't say that uh, snow in Florida in, in, in November is, <clears throat> um, is proof that climate change isn't happening. We have to be able to separate uh, this. We can talk about overall trends. Right. Uh, the other thing that I would say about uh, these issues is that there are some, um, some weather phenomena which are much more easily attributable, directly attributable to climate change. And those are the ones that have a very uh, direct um, and easily understood uh, physical basis. That is the basis in physics. Um, so um, heat waves, for example, um, we are much more able to uh, um, much more accurately or uh, attribute a particular heat wave, extreme heat event. Uh, to climate change, and oh, like it's say much hurricanes more, and typhoons, for example, work in the same way with ocean currents. Is it's, that right? Exactly, but there's many, many other variables, not just uh, uh, a warming planet. So to, to be able to separate that um, that variable from these other variables is much more difficult. That's not to say that we can't do it. It may take mm. um, you know months of analysis to be able to uh, to be able to assess what uh, proportion of you know, or not proportion, but um, 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 how extreme is this event compared to the norm? Right, right. These sorts of things. Because we're talking about a spectrum, right? I mean, there's any spectrum, even a nor- quote unquote normal spectrum, is going to have extreme ends. That's exactly. Right. And so, like, how, you know, so given that there's already a, a diversity in this spectrum, like, how do we uh, attribute? So, let's take the, the most horrifying, I think, the right. thing that is that we need to be very concerned about, but also, as you mentioned just a moment ago, very careful about how we interpret yes, these wildfires that yeah. are in Southern California. Yeah. Now, now, for my non Americans out, sorry, non United Statesers out, there because you are an american sir standing in canada as are <laughs> as are my mexican comrades in central american and south america anyhow uh for the europeans out there the australians out there all the rest of you uh in southern california you will probably have seen even by now these these horrific fires i mean it's just it's 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 apocalyptic it's, uh, yeah, some of yeah. the videos that are coming out of this thing it's like there's a there's a there's a one in particular i'll put it up if I get a chance on my Twitter or Facebook page for folks to check out. And it looks like the entire mountainside is on fire. It's something out of an apocalypse yeah. movie. And precisely because it looks so horrific mm-hmm. and because there is this wider discourse about the end of the world. Um, so do more collapse, uh, colla- collapse porn. Exactly. Yeah, they love um, it. It's very easy for us on the, the green left to, uh, to immediately attribute that to, uh, to global warming in exactly the same way. It's very easy for, uh, for, People on the on the right um, to immediately see uh, uh, an, an unusual snowstorm um, as proof that climate change isn't happening. Um, wildfires. Well, I see snow out my window right now, and, and there's snowflakes actually. So um, I think I think it's done. So at uh, you phony phony science, phony. and uh, no, you're you're here to to spout a liberal agenda. And I <laughs> yeah. won't have it. I won't have it on the dead pundit society. So let's get into the deep. Let's go well, into just, the just weeds one, here. Just yeah, one, 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 quick, point, one, yeah. one quick thing on, on wildfires. Oh, yeah. um, we know that they will be extended in terms of uh, – there will be a the greater extent. There will be more, uh, greater incidence of them, mm-hmm. greater intensity. But there are so many other variables involved. Um, so, for example, land use change 
um, or human forestry practices have a huge impact on this. Um, the, so separating out the aspect of climate change is very difficult. Um, it's, I recommend that your listeners um, search for something called attribution studies. Scientists are getting better at the, uh, the role of, of attributing the role of climate change in extreme weather events. But it's, it's very, very, very complicated. Those, uh, those things like um, – I'm bumbling. Um, those, those events that have a really strong grounding in, in, in physics, uh, that, where the physics is very well understood, such as mm-hmm. extreme heat events, uh, we can uh, make a much clearer attribution of the role of climate change in those than we can with wildfires. So maybe in the future we'll be have, We'll be able to do that better, but so I would just very one can have in one's head at the same time the idea that yes, there will be an increase in wildfires, while not being able to say that this particular wildfire, however horrific it is, we mm. we can't at this moment say that this was a result of climate change, and it's just that that nuance. It's it's. Um, yeah, it's important if we're going to be taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely, because it is so easy for us to to sneer at, yeah. at, at at Donald Trump when he says, "Oh, it's snowing so much for climate change." Well, right. in the same way, it's very easy for the right to sneer at us when we say, "Oh, look, it's you know, it's another hurricane. It's 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 it's, it's because of climate change." This one particular hurricane, we can't say. The increase in the amount of hurricanes, um, yeah, we can. And the, the intensity of them, yeah, we can absolutely say that. But any one particular extreme weather event, very, very difficult. We're getting down to the, my motto. I've recent my credo. It's, it's, it's uh, very much inflected in this show and the approach that I take with my guests and my topics, which is to say, never sacrifice analytic precision for political expedience. There you go. That's lovely. And I mean, I've, I've really distilled that down and I'm proud of that. I like it. I think I'm going to keep it for now until I hate it and come up with something else. But it works, right? So the people who are, you know, posting about the wildfires, as horrific as they are, and say, oh my God, global warming, it's here, it's coming. See, we told you. It's like, that's the political expediency argument. Absolutely, yeah. However, we're sacrificing analytic precision and, and accuracy, you know, scientific accuracy, right? And and doing that, I think it's really dangerous. So I was—I mean, it seems like the the ones that are up to physics, right, with the with the wind currents and the ocean currents, that has more like maybe like a linear attribution. But I almost wanted to say like f- the fires almost has like a, almost kind of like a stochastic, yeah, exactly, nature Absolutely. to yeah. it. Maybe That's a tell us way what, of describing that. like the stoke. I, I, I study finance and derivatives and stuff like right. that, you know, in financial crises, and so I understand so stochastic forecasting. And tell us like a little bit of what that is like, so that maybe we can understand. How to um, yeah how how to look at this? You're a science writer. You you, you explain right. yeah. difficult so, difficult <laughs> concepts it, to the masses. You know, it's actually really uh, fairly straightforward f- uh, for people to 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 get their minds between uh, around uh, the conception of something that's stochastic. It just me- it just basically means that there's a lot of different reasons why something might happen. Um, it's uh, thinking about it roughly as um, appearing to be random. Um, that's probably a good way of, of thinking about that. So it's very, very difficult to, to, to pin down the precise causation um, because there are just simply so many variables in a particular, um, within a particular system. Uh, it's, it's very, whereas, you know, the, the, the classic example of something that uh, would be more linear, uh, more easily describable in terms of cause and effect are uh, uh, billiard balls on a billiard table 
Um, you hit them in a particular direction and you can very straightforwardly predict exactly where they're going to be uh, next. I don't know. Does that is that? Yeah, that was that was very good. Well, much better than I could. I'm just throwing out jargon and big words that I don't really understand. So, uh, hey, when in doubt, folks, get you a science writer to explain these really <laughs> fucking difficult. I, I could do it. I could do a better Billiard job. Billiard balls, I, man. Billiard balls, people. That was balls. gold. <laughs> I could do a better gold. job if I if I was writing and I could. Uh, yeah. think, okay, is that exactly the right metaphor? No, that was uh, good. That was yeah. good. So I think it's important for people to understand this because if we plot all of these things in a linear fashion, as you would say, say um, you know heat waves or, or or even maybe perhaps in a more complex way, hurricanes. You get it wrong, and I think that's that's the impulse. But I think people do that, right? I think I think attributing it's fires to climate change, yeah, it's understandable. So I think they have the best of intentions, but yeah, understanding absolutely. the science is is a really crucial way and getting the politics correct. And that's why yeah. we've got you on because you can do both. So let's talk a little bit about your story, sir. In the beginning of your book, your your first book, Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts, it's really autobiographical and in a really important way because you set the stage about what. The left and 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 progressive liberal left looked right. like in terms of of back in the anti globalization era, you had people okay. dressed in turtle costumes getting uh, maced, uh, you know, on the streets yeah, of Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I was there yeah. in Seattle, and you write about that moment. So let's 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 paint the picture for the millennials out there who don't have a vivid, uh, you know, uh, a vivid memory of that political era and, and and tell us a little bit about the the narratives the catastrophism that was sort of imbued in 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 the in these struggles right uh yeah i think it well november 30th this year was the 18th anniversary of uh of the battle in seattle um i went down there with i, I can't believe that it was it's it, it seems like yesterday to me 18 years. Um, yeah, 18 there, years. There are people who are now adults who yeah, were born absolutely. on that day. Yeah. <laughs> they can buy cigarettes or whatever, go to our movies or whatever the fuck it is that kids do these days. <laughs> I think kids do much worse, but I don't you know. Yeah, no, it blows my mind. But, um, kids these days, am I right? <laughs> kids these days. <laughs> That's always a progressive argument. <laughs> um, so t- t- teach these millennials a, a thing or two about the anti-globalization <laughs> movement. What do you got for them? Uh, so yeah, it was uh, it, the the protest against the World Trade Organization in Seattle in uh, the end of November in nineteen ninety nine. It was you know I went down there with yeah you know, I think I can't remember I think there was like seven buses at the time. Jesus. Uh, from Victoria, British Columbia, down to down to Seattle. So, what what were the organizations that were funding? All that? sorts. It's a big enterprise. All right? sorts to, to of all bring sorts of organizations. buses and fund that and coordinate that. Yeah, all sorts of, of uh, uh, student organizations, the Canadian Federation of Students, uh, mm-hmm. different small local organizations, um, Trotskyists, anarchists, um, labor, uh, big you know big support from labor, um, and. Um, yeah, so this that was my milieu. That was uh, that was. Uh, there were a few other protests like that that um, weren't quite as famous. Uh, there, um, uh, in in Quebec, in Quebec City, and then in Genoa and Italy. And so this uh, was a this was a culmination. So tell 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 the yeah. audience exactly what what you all were protesting. So the huh, what weren't we protesting? I think that was one yeah. of the problems. Is that. Um, it increasingly became uh, clear that in a whole range of different uh, international um, uh, trade agreements mm-hmm. and broader 
not just trade agreements, but a range of different treaty-based organizations are, um, uh, involved, had included within their, these treaties or within their, their, their structures mechanisms that remove decision-making uh, out of the democratic space and put it over into, you know, behind closed doors, whether it was bureaucrats or trade tribunals, uh, lawyers, um, technocrats, uh, judges, uh, these sorts of figures, um, bec- basically because, um, as it was once, to- I, you know, I later became a, a journalist in, in Brussels, and as, as one figure um, in Brussels put it, uh, you know, working for the, the European Commission said, you know, that if... Um, if people were allowed to make decisions over fiscal issues, let's say, uh, they would just vote themselves into constantly vote themselves into debt. We just can't trust people to uh, uh, to vote the way uh, we can't trust people with democracy. Basically, yeah, we, we it, see a reappearance of that in the European Union and yeah, the Euro debt crisis. Abs- exactly, absolutely. In Greece and yeah, Portugal yeah, and Spain, absolutely. Ireland, absolutely. And all the rest of it. Yeah. And so it was a real moment where um, uh, a lot of young people, in particular, but also a lot of trade unions and environmental organizations. We're seeing how um, laws that had been developed and, and democratically um, implemented were being undone um, and being overruled by these unelected uh, uh, trade, trade tribunals and, and similar sorts of bodies. And people were furious about it. I was initially I was I was blown away. I was I was shocked that that this was happening. I remember going to one organizing meeting. Where some like a, a couple months ahead of uh, 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 the demonstrations in Seattle, and there were there were seventy people at an organizing meeting, not at, at a talk um, or a or a rally or anything, but at an organizing meeting. I mean, normally you get like twelve people, eight people at an organizing meeting, and I thought I remember thinking to myself, something's up here, something because I thought it was weird. I like who pays attention to trade agreements? I mean, I know that I care about these things, uh, but. And how how much of a threat they are to democracy? But like, like, really, do ordinary people pay attention? And it turns out that that they do. That they and they did. And and, and so the that, trade the trade agreement was really kind of an avatar for all of these things exactly. that, that people perceived to be wrong with the the direction that the world was headed in. It was just the catalyst for a much broader conversation about um, globalization, about that we are moving to a uh, a global economy, and some people have won, some people have lost, and. We should be able to have a conversation about what kind of society that we want. And so even though in the press we were often called the anti-globalization movement, we were very clear, at least a lot of people were very clear um, within the movement to describe ourselves as the global justice movement or in French, alter-mondialisme, alter-globalization. Another world is possible. Not that we were against globalization, but that we wanted a different kind of globalization, one that put people and planet um, at the heart of decision making, um, and that was democratic. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's that's that was my uh, that was my milieu. That was um... no, I gotta I gotta I gotta stop you there because I gotta okay. tell you it's it's I, I read your book. It's right. a fantastic read, folks. By the way, gets, pick it up from Zero Books, uh, wherever Amazon, wherever you you can buy your books these days. Uh, Austerity, ecology, and class porn addicts. It's a really fun read. 
I learned a lot. It's it's a it's a it's a quick read. You have a very great journalistic style, being a journalist. Uh, sure. You break things down in an entertaining way, but it's also autobiographical. So I got to stop you there because okay. that, that 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 sounds like a little revisionist personal history you got going on there. Because in the book, you're a lot harder on yourself. So it's it's a t- tell us let's let's expose Lee Phillips here. We're gonna get real. We're gonna go deep. Okay. What were some of the wrong-headed ideas that you that you had at that time? What are some of the embarrassing positions that that you that you possessed? And I think that's a good way to okay. get into. <laughs> if we can pause, I can, I can remember what I say. <laughs> it's been a while since I wrote it. It came out in 2015, so I can't remember. What did I say? Remind me. Uh, I mean, you know, usually you talk about in the opening about how you held some positions. Uh, that you now come have come to uh, reject uh, quite right. vehemently and in, 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 in really a sophisticated way, I would say. But you used to be far more uh, enthralled oh, with quasi-primitivist. Yes. Certainly, right. certainly organizationally, you were yeah. anarchist, uh, vaguely anarchist of some kind. So tell us a little bit about tell us a little bit about where you were and um, how and why you changed politically, organizationally. Yeah, I was very briefly um, for a few months in, in Earth First, a uh, radical environmental organization. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, even at the end, uh, I think I have sort of different perspectives at the moment on uh, sort of the, the so-called critique of uh, anthropocentrism. I, I, I would now say that um, I, I think we should be unapologetically defending anthropocentrism, but that, you know, we can have another chat about, or we can have a chat about that later. But yeah, um, so what does that mean? Cause we're going to talk about that on the B side. We're going to sure. talk about what it means to be unapologetically anthropocentric. It's an, uh, what does that mean uh, for, for folks? So deep ecology, um, uh, uh, the heart of deep ecology proposed, which was, you know, earth first in similar organizations. And uh, there are many more people who would describe themselves as, as deep ecologists these days, not just the, the radical greens, but that, uh, and the mounted critique of anthropocentrism, which is the suggestion that um, uh, anthropocentrism is human focused. Uh, that's basically what it means. Um, and that instead of being uh, human-focused, we should be life-focused. We should be biocentric. We should be considering all species as equal. And that uh, basically thinking only about humans or humans as the most important uh, species is uh, that basically the species equivalent of white supremacy. And that we should we, sh- uh, we should move away from that. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, so yeah, no, I I, I don't agree with that aspect um, uh, anymore. Um, so you were far more yeah. biocentric. I mean, the 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 organ for fuck's sake, the organization yeah. is called Earth First, Earth First which is absolutely. like this is a really interesting way that the, that the environmental movement created these narratives about like p- the planet where people were really secondary. Like, and you'd even yeah. have, I mean, people yeah. say it nowadays too, right? It's it's kind of a throwaway line. I think people mean it more or less than than others, but they'll say like, oh God, wouldn't this planet be so much better off if we without weren't humans? Here? Yeah, exactly, and. Yeah, and like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean, right? Well, when, you know, when I was in when I was in uh, Earth first, uh, I was only there very briefly because I, I didn't agree with spiking of trees. I mean, there was this practice that um, some members of Earth first in, engaged in, which was to protect sort of old growth forests. They would they would go into the woods and they would put you know spikes in the trees and then uh, warn uh, loggers that uh, that they'd done this. Sometimes they wouldn't actually do it. They would say that they'd done it, but they hadn't actually done it. And the problem there is, of course, if the, those, those metal spikes in the mill, they can you know, destroy equipment. But they can also kill, kill loggers. That's, yeah. uh, I, I, I very much oppose that. And I was, very, I, was already, I was definitely a socialist. And I had 
uh, enormous frustrations with the the misanthropy, the uh, the anti working class bias, and so figures like Judy Berry, um, who was also an Earth First campaigner um, uh, in the United States, she was she was a great hero of mine because she was able to say uh, that there is no conflict between um, the working class. She was also a trade union organizer. There was no conflict between the working class and sustainable um, um, uh, logging practices. Mm-hmm. In fact, in order to ha- have sustainable jobs, the jobs will always be there that you had to engage in sustainable logging practices. And that, that really resonated with me. Um, I, that was the sort of, um, sort of line that I, that I continue to go down. Um, but I remember there was, there was a, um, it was a sort of allied group. It was mostly the same people, uh, friends of the wolf. And I remember going in a, uh, not a convoy cause it was just two cars, but we drove up, uh, from, from the lower mainland in British Columbia up to, up to Alaska to protest the expansion of the wolf kill. Um, and, uh, and I remember and it was a long, long drive. And I remember having arguments with people in the car, uh, up there about, things like overpopulation and uh, misanthropy and, and uh, um, you know, hatred of humans and humans are just a scourge on the planet that we're a virus and all this stuff. And I didn't right, believe the any virus of metaphor. It's so, always exactly comes to the, human beings are a virus on the planet and we need to be excised. And- yeah. That things would be so much better without humans. And, uh, and I, <laughs> I said, I remember in the car saying to this one person, I said, well, um, uh, you first, like, like, why don't you just kill yourself? And, and the res- I remember to this day, the re- his response was, well, you know what? I have thought about it. <sighs> and it just, uh, <laughs> I, it was, it was mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there's your history. You had, yeah. you had a really firsthand up close experience with yeah. these, uh, these, these, uh, primitivists that wanted to sort of go back uh, to I don't know to the caveman days or just yeah. excise uh, humans from the planet altogether, um, and you you were very uh, rightly turned off by yeah. that narrative, and, and you've been working ever since to to try to fight for a more principled socialist uh, anthropocentric yeah. approach uh, to to the environment, not just for the sake of of of, of humans, right? It's not just that you're pro human, which you are. You're a devout and, and unapologetic humanist. Uh, but but because you believe that that's the only way actually that we can be successful at all in, in, in actually achieving what the environmental and ecological justice movement sets out uh, to, to do. So let's talk about the, the let's talk about the other side of that. Let's talk about the extreme right. primitivists, the radical greens, right. the Derek I, yeah. Jensen's. Uh, tell my audience who that is, because I didn't know who Derek Jensen was. I just had a cursory had a cursory understanding of who he was. I had, certainly had never read him or taken any of those people seriously. Um, so who is Derek Jensen and, and what kind of movement does he represent? Derek Jensen is one, uh, one example of, of, uh, probably the most extreme edge, uh, of, uh, of, of, of radical greenery, um, in that he, he's a primitivist. He, he argued, although he doesn't like the term primitivism because he thinks it's anti-indigenous. So he, he's, uh, but basically what he wants is he's, he's anti-civilization. He believes that civilization uh, is the, the cause of all, uh, all of our environmental problems, all of our social pro- uh, problems, and that we should retreat from modernity, in fact, even from civilization, agriculture, and just go back to uh, basically what we would call as, as hunter-gatherer society, that that would uh, solve all of our problems. Huh. Um, and that he recognizes that in order to, uh, for this to happen, 
that uh, most people would not survive, that there would be a massive culling of humanity, that you know, on the order of billions of people would die, uh, possibly 7 billion people. And, uh, and he's fine with that. He's absolutely fine with that. It's, um, it, it's fascism on steroids. I mean, Hitler only killed 6 million Jews. He wants to kill 7 billion people. It's, um, well, it's, he's not killing him. He's just sort of letting nature, or yeah, no, you know, yeah. Uh, take its course. Or but the the vision, the vision extreme of extreme nihilism. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and to be fair, it's chilling. You know, it's absolutely chilling. It's absolutely chilling. But to, and to be fair, you know, primitivism is a is a very fringe phenomenon even today. Um, and in you know in the in the 90s early 2000s uh, the the radical green movement I wouldn't say was primitivist. It critiqued anthropocentrism um but the sort of intellectual trajectory has now and so people figures like uh, john zerzan the philo- the anarchist uh, anti-civilization philosopher um he was you know very fringe at this point but now that that's sort of perspective john zerzan um uh, derek jensen is another figure uh paul kingsnorth in the uk and then uh, these are not fringe figures you can um you know you can buy um, Derek Jensen's uh, books in Walmart. Um, you, uh, uh, Paul Kingsnorth has a very similar perspective in the UK, um, and and he's you know he was on the Booker uh, long list for for a book on it was called it was a novel called The Wake I think, mm-hmm. uh, which it was a novel but it involved many sort of deep green um, uh, sort of primitivist um, themes and his uh, his whole. Um, his whole bag is a project called Dark Mountain, which is uh, basically a giving up on the possibility of saving the planet, that the, uh, that the end is coming for civilization. And we've just got to accept that. And we've got to, um, that, and, but in fact, that's both sad, but it's also fantastic because um, it will return humanity back to its sort of, um, it will, undomesticate um it will make us wild again um in this sort of perspective and and in in uh, in in mexico again it's very fringe but uh you know i was i was sent by by nature to to mexico city to report on uh there being a series of bombings um, yeah. um targeting nanotechnology researchers and um, in in Switzerland as well, and um, other parts of Italy, it's uh, known as eco terrorism. Eco terrorism, totally yeah. straight up, yeah. straight up eco terrorism. Um, one uh, biotech researcher was actually murdered, um, and <clears throat> this is like Unabomber style. It is. Shit. It's totally. It's exactly. It's Unabomber. Yeah, in, in, in the same stuff. era, perhaps even, yeah. or you know, in the, in the same uh, quasi era. Well, this is. Well, the, the, here's the thing: is this is this is more contemporary. Uh, so I was sent by nature in 2012 to go and uh, oh, two, this was stuff. 2012. 2012. Jesus, I would have yeah. thought this was so. This is really a holdover of the same Unabomber uh, sort of ideology. It's just it's spread much more thoroughly within the sort of anarchist milieu. But to be fair, um, uh, these are very fringe fringe ideas. But uh, in terms of uh, the violence, you know, uh, violent actions. Uh, they don't represent mainstream environmentalism. They don't represent uh, the Naomi Kleins of the world by any stretch. But um, when Naomi Klein and other figures condemn um, Judeo-Christian civilization, the idea that we can dominate nature, um, and she, she criticizes all of that the kind stuff. kind of arrogance of humanity. The arrogance pursuits, of humanity, of right. extractivism, that we should retreat from all of this stuff and we should like learn to live um, 
uh, more in, you know, in balance with nature once again. If anything, people like – if it's actually true what she's saying, if that is actually what we need to be doing, then uh, – and – then the Paul Kings Norths and Derek Jensen's and these eco Mexican eco terrorists, um, they're actually if it, if it really is the case that these are uh, that civilization is this terrible thing, then they're actually doing what needs to happen. If that they're just taking these arguments to their logical conclusion, or just by any means necessary. By any means necessary. Yeah, yeah. You can you can disagree necessary uh, with their with the tactics, but you would have to say well. Morally, that's they're they're only just drawing the the, the rational conclusions of of the mainstream right. perspective. If if Prince Charles if Prince Charles is saying that humans are a virus, huh. uh, and David uh, Attenborough is saying you know there are too many people on the planet, um, these people are actually saying okay, right? So let's uh, let's solve that. Let's yeah, solve that. It maybe Prince Charles just doesn't have the stomach to do what's necessary. <laughs> Right. But but shocking, though, that, you know, a royalty would find, uh, you know, humans to be parasites and they could just be exterminated. You know, I can't believe that to be true. That's that's well, the, that's this is what, astonishing. This is one of the arguments that I make in my book is like I go through a series of I, I, I critique what's the what the problem is with anti-consumerism. I critique what the problem is with anti-nuclear. I critique mm-hmm. what the problem with sort of anti-extractivism with, you know, a whole series of different um uh, things that are sort of problematic within within mainstream environmentalism and radical environmentalism, um, and then at, right at the end, I sort of try to draw an intellectual write out a sort of intellectual history of these ideas, and they go back to counter enlightenment. The you know so when you say that you know how surprising would it be that Prince Charles um, hates the little people, hates humanity? It's like well, actually that's. That's where these ideas come from. The yeah. there is a there's it's a he's not an aberration. Not an aberration. This yeah. this goes this anti modernity, this hatred of uh, of and fear of of, of the masses, um, um, goes back has a um, has a very old pedigree. You know, it goes back to sort of counter counter enlightenment ideas, pro monarchy, the natural order of things, um, that there um, the church, the king. Um, uh, the the lord in his, his manner, the you know uh, the peasant in his field, uh, that is the natural order of things. Just as if we look out of our windows, we see there's a natural order, a natural balance. So among, so in society there is uh, there's a natural order, and these 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 board these revolutionaries, these democratic revolutionaries, this, these scientists, these natural philosophers, they're overthrowing the natural order, and uh, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so. Even though, and then you can you can you can you can you can follow that thread through to um, the late nineteenth century or twentieth century. Um, uh, the on the far, what would become the, the far right uh, arguments about returning back to the land that modernity has, industry has destroyed man's soul, uh, German you know the German spirit, and the the, the um, revival of the human spirit. Uh, we'll be returning to this balance with nature, returning to agriculture, uh, a turn away from industry and modernity and science. And, and that's not to say that uh, the Naomi Kleins of the world um, are, are fascists or that the Naomi Kleins of the world are monarchist counter-enlightenment uh, thinkers. Um, if you spoke to her, she would be, you know, straight up very, very, um, very anti-fascist, very pro-immigration. Um, um, 
very pro-trade union. Um, she's done some wonderful stuff um, uh, reporting historically on, 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 on the crash in Argentina and workers' cooperatives. And, you know, but at the same time, uh, the, the arguments that people like her make around um, that modernity, that enlightenment, uh, that science, uh, that our ambition to control nature – that we need to return to some natural balance. Those are those are quite rea- historically reactionary ideas. Right, right. So let's get into that then. So we've laid out the 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 sort of um, green anarchist, radical greens, the Derek Jensen's yeah. uh, Derek Jensen's big book here, and I mean big is nine hundred pages, two volumes. Yeah. It's called Endgame. It's really apocalyptic and extremist, primitivist. Uh, he, he lays out a series of twenty premises. Twenty premises. Right, yeah, uh, yeah. Premise six. Uh, it says it all. Premise six is uh, can be summed up as civilization is not redeemable. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, this culture will not undergo any sort of voluntary transformation to sane, to, to a sane and sustainable way of living. And so this is where the, the sort of like implicit fascism comes in, right? So we're not going to undergo this voluntarily. It's either going to be through a series of uh, sort of like apocalyptic yeah. catastrophes or there's going to just be an atrophy of the human population. It's explicitly anti-democratic. It says that, the, mm. that civilization... And because people that, don't course, want it, right? People, people want civilization, and that's wrong. Yeah. And, and therefore, we, if people will never vote for a... It, it basically, saying uh, it is impossible for people to vote for a sustainable path. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, you know, uh, it's a rejection of democracy. You, we, it's a rejection of all of humanity... I mean, and uh, the, that 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 instinct, that um, that thought that the democracy is not redeemable, the democracy uh, is is inherently problematic. Well, that is a fascist idea. That is explicit. That is that. That is what fascism is. So really gross, I mean, implicitly gross stuff here coming yeah. from other folks who, who consider themselves to be on the left, I think, which is a really bizarre kind of, uh, uh, you know, designation for these yeah. green anarch- anarchists, radical greens. But but so we've, we've made that argument. That's that's pretty straightforwardly gross, like fucking just uh, despicable stuff. Um, and if, and if you hold any of these ideas or you come from that generation and you're really sort of like, uh, you know, implicit, like kind of like, you know, uh, unconsciously or subconsciously, like have some kind of affinity for those kinds of claims or understanding about humans place in the world or whatever, like stop it, <laughs> you know, knock it off. These things are, have some really gross, uh, trajectories. Uh, can't wait to get all the hate mail for that. Uh, <laughs> get, you probably, get no, I mean, I think already. I should, uh, one, uh, one, one thing I should probably be very clear uh, about, I mean, one of the criticisms that I've received for the book is that you're, you're conflating uh, the Naomi Klein's and Bill McKibben's uh, of the world with these more e- extreme figures. And now one has to be very clear. It is, it is actually the case that these people uh, do write in many of the same, uh, same journals. Paul, uh, Naomi Klein has written in, uh, in, in you know, uh, Similar sort of journals as, as Paul Kingsnorth, Paul Kingsnorth, and but that can sort of begin to get into guilt by association. I don't want to do that, but I do want to paint at least the idea that uh, these are not unconnected uh, thinkers. Yeah. So, so let's do that. You actually, you actually prefigured where I was going next, okay. which is excellent. 
uh, we've got the hive mind thing going here pretty good. This is great. So that's actually where I was going. So let's lay that. Let's let's make that case explicitly. So we we've, right. we've laid out the Derek Jensen's, the Radical Greens. So so what, what you do in your book very explicitly and carefully in a very nuanced way. And I think a lot of that criticism is just bullshit. These people don't read. You know, your critics never read you seriously. <laughs> but anyway, if they had, they would see that in your uh, austerity ecology and collapse porn addicts and the opening several chapters, you make that case very carefully and you don't falsely conflate the Bill McKibbins and the Naomi Kleins with the radical green uh, green anarchists. But you do uh, show that they, they have a similar logic to their arguments, as yeah. we've already said. And so one of the ways that you lay that out, perhaps, would be nice to explain t- uh, to the audience is that the difference between the Derek Jensen's and the Naomi Kleins is in many cases – uh, which era would they yes, like to yes, return yes, to? Yes, right? So absolutely. Derek Jensen wants to take us back to the caves or some like yeah. early agrarian society. Naomi Klein is is sort of uh, changes her position on this, but I, yeah. I think you know in, in in her book, the book that we're talking about here. For those who don't know, uh, it's, the book is called "This Changes Everything." It came out in 2014. Um, it argues that the climate crisis uh, can't be addressed under the current era of like neoliberalism and market fundamentalism. It's uh, in it, it, uh, she's anti-consumerism in a way that you argue rightly uh, borders on uh, potentially promoting certain forms of austerity, yeah. which is what we're going to come back to that and sure. unpack it very, very carefully. Uh, so that's the book we're talking about. Uh, she goes, she wants to go back to what, the 1970s? Is that yeah. Right? So she, uh, she begins by saying that um, we need to retreat back to base, basically the 1970s before um, uh, corporate capitalism exploded. Um, I mean, I, I don't really like the phrase corporate capitalism. I mean, is there a kind of capitalism that isn't corporate? But anyway, yeah. um, uh, but she basically locates the um, uh, the clock, the, the 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 period that we need to turn the clock back to, mm-hmm. to prior to neoliberalism. That before that, everything was was tickety boo. That that's that was that's the thing that that was fine. That was a that was sustainable. That was. But then, you know, uh, then she says that uh, we need to go back to prior to at another point in the book. She talks about going back prior to um, uh, prior to the, uh, the the scientific revolution that it was Francis Bacon uh, explicitly that she says and his conception of this domination, the dominion over nature, domination over uh, dominion uh, was uh, is the was the original sin, and so we need to basically return back to prior to that. Before so you know we, uh, what we know as science or you know bacon being kind of like one of the fathers uh call me a eurocentrist come at me bro i dare you but <laughs> whatever fuck it francis bacon yeah. being like one of the early fathers of just like of scientific, scientific thought yeah. right the yeah. idea that 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 mankind humanity can have some kind of like purposeful uh, d- uh dominion over mm-hmm. nature you know with the proper methodology and mindset the under to under to be able to understand nature uh, understand nature better to be able to transform it that is just in the same way that you would say that we need to under today you'd say we need to understand cancer better in order to prevent cancer that's all he's saying basically there dominion over nature is saying there is what nature gives us um and nature is you know red in tooth and claw um, let us make sure that we understand it better in order to prevent the bad things from happening. That's all he's saying, basically. But right, 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 right. And it had a, it had a fundamentally it had a fundamentally humanitarian purpose. Exactly, I mean, we absolutely. can alleviate suffering and human toil. It's a wonderful statement. It's a deeply humanist statement. Uh, but she views it as uh, 
uh, as as the original sin. But then she sort of at another point she goes back further and says that it's actually Judeo-Christian civilization itself that is that is the uh, uh, that is the original sin that, that that's the real problem. So okay, so are you returning back to the 1970s, or you want to retreat back to prior to the scientific revolution to feudalism, or do you want to retreat back to prior to civilization? So, so hunter gatherer society. Now, so she's she, a little unclear. About she's a little unclear, and if you if you pushed her on this, you could. She would. I'm guessing she would say, "Well, I'm no more talking about the ideas that these are the the ideas are, are problematic." Well, okay, well. Um, be clear about that and and say what it uh, what epoch exactly it is that um, you want to retreat back to, and then you have somebody like Bill McKibben, who is um, you know probably one of the most famous environmentalists in the United States. You know, a former New Yorker writer, um, the 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 founder of three fifty dot org. He's you know. Yeah, he's one of the most famous environmentalists in the United States and in the world. And in his, he's written many books. Uh, and in a number of his books, he talks about retreating back to uh, that uh, prior to you know uh, before industry, but 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 not quite as far back as as Naomi Klein. His his uh, his favorite epoch is sort of Jeff, Jeffersonian early America. Uh, the, the with the yeoman farmer, agrarian populism, agrarian populism, and right? Farmer and yeah. you know Jefferson. You know Jefferson said some wonderful, wonderful things, but at the same time, he you know some one aspect of Jefferson's uh, philosophy was this sort of celebration of of of, of the basically the petty bourgeoisie, petty bourgeoisie, the uh, the yeoman farmer, and so, and so forth. And you can see how aesthetically a McKibben would really like that. And then you get somebody like Paul Kingsnorth and his 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 favorite epoch is English Civil War, prior to the English Civil War. He loves that period, and that's the period that he wants us to retreat to. Uh, but then at other times, he's sort of anti-civilization. And, and then, of course, you get the, the Derek Jensen's of the world who just like full-on pre-civilization. Uh, that's the epic that we, we need to retreat to. return humans to the wild. Right? Return humans to the wild. And then you've got, <clears throat> you've got De- uh, Derek Jensen, uh, not Derek Jensen, uh, John Zerzan, the, the anarchist, anti-civilization philosopher, primitivist, full-on prim- primitivist, and his his thing is it was actually not even civilization but symbolic thought that's the problem, um, and uh, here you know the challenge is that uh, symbolic thought begins to you know emerge as as we now know that there are pre-human or not pre-human but non-human species that have some proto symbolic thought some abstract thought and so he's basically you know the 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 logic there is that it's humans themselves that we need to retreat from humanity. And, you know, but basically, I mean, I joke about this and it really comes down to nobody's real, none of these thinkers has really uh, rigorously thought through um, uh, which is the, the appropriate epoch. It's just, it's just basically whichever epoch that, that they feel aesthetically, that rings a bell with them aesthetically. It's that's, you know, um, uh, McKibben loves yeoman farmers of Jeffersonian American. It's a sort of patriotism, I think, there. And in the English Civil War epoch for um, uh, for uh, for Paul Kingsnorth. I mean, again, aesthetically, you can see that in his novels that, that he really, really loves it. You know, I was born in England. I get it. I have this um, 
I, I love that period. I that's a that's a period of history that I feel very aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, and, and it functions in a very similar ide- ideological manner to the Jeffersonian yeoman farmer yeah. era in in America. It's not a direct parallel, but but according to like the kind of like cult- cultural and historical mythology, uh, the sort of like origin stories of of, of modern America and modern UK, like yeah. they both function in very similar ways. I would of say. where we went wrong, and I mean he- the, the the German or the uh, notion of uh, Heideggerian notion of Heimat. And, and that 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 um, the rivers and the farms and that was that's the true German spirit. There's there's a sort of dark little patriotism. There's a sort of um, yeah, yeah. nationalism that uh, that runs through this. Right, right. So I mean, so let's let's be clear about what we're saying and what we're not saying. Uh, it seems irrefutable that the Bill McKibbins and the Declines and the and the, the Jensens and the others uh, have have a similar kind of way in which they envision this sort of prehistory or this earlier form of civilization that was more sustainable and more appealing. Mm-hmm. That we need to go back and turn back the clock uh, to, to that time. So where uh, where does Naomi Klein say, for example, in her book, "This Changes Everything," uh, most profoundly differ from the radical anarchists? I think the uh, she I think she's contradictory, and this is the problem: is that um, in terms of what I've just said, she echoes many of the things that the uh, the, the the radical Greens say. Um, um, you know, she's anti-extractivism, uh, but uh, she so basically, so does that mean so no mining, like no mining at all? Well, I mean, and here's the contradiction: is that where the radical Greens have given up, and they would say absolutely no mining, no more mining at all. And, uh, but if you pushed at Naomi Klein, she would have to concede that in the other parts of her book, she talks about a massive build out of public transportation, which I totally support. I think that's absolutely, it's a wonderful idea. We need uh, more public transportation. Uh, that's a, that's one really important aspect of, uh, the decarbonization, uh, program. But where does the steel come from to produce those, uh, you know, light rail, you know, rapid transit and, and, and trains and, and subway systems. And where's that going to come from? And the plastics that we need uh, uh, in terms of the articulation between the, 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 uh, the, the rail cars uh, on a subway and stuff like that. Where, where are we going to get the plastic from? And um, so, and she, it's just the thing is that she is a beautiful writer. She's a really, really gorgeous writer. She's a wonderful wordsmith. And I think sometimes she runs away with this sounds like a lovely, lovely sort of turn of phrase extractivism. Yeah. Uh, she invented that term. That's, you know, that sounds great. That's, yeah. oh, That's what a novel concept. More or less how she's made a career on inventing Absolutely. really great, I think, shock, terms. The shock doctrine and uh, disaster, uh, disaster, disaster capitalism. capitalism. And, but if you, I think if you actually sat her down and said, Nomi, there's a contradiction here. Uh, where are you going to get all this stuff from? Do you really mean that there should be no mining? And I think she would probably say, yeah, okay, yeah, that's not what I mean. Okay, well then, so that was just some flat, what do you mean? Because that was some flowery language. And that, that's basically all I'm saying is that, um, that flowery language, like if you take it to its logical conclusion, it's contradictory. It doesn't make any sense. Um, or it, it retreats back basically to this, uh, this, this primitivism. And what I'm saying is that there are, the real solutions and Naomi uh, and Bill and some of these other people, you do actually hint at these when you talk about the transition to clean technologies. Um, what is it going to take to do that? And then we do need to begin to look at some sort of things like technological changes, 
um, left social democracy and in the long term sort of uh, democratic planning and socialism and and uh, but it's a high modernity environmentalism. It's a right. it's an embrace of these tech of, of, of technologies. So let's talk about what that means exactly, because one of the more problematic aspects that I hinted at when I introduced uh, Naomi Klein is that. Uh, so in her very first book that, that had sort of like a lot of success, uh, No Logo. No Logo, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was really, uh, 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 she represented this new generational critique of what you might call commodity culture. And so right, it was yeah. an anti-consumerist, yeah. anti-commodity culture, which, which, which ultimately kind of has a lot of resonances with, 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 aus- with an austere, austerian Absolutely, kind of yeah. logic about what human society should look like, right? Like it's this very popular, sometimes right, sometimes left, sometimes far right, sometimes far left, yeah. uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction against, ah, you know, there's too many things. In too many world, things, yeah. And we don't value other things, you know, values, cultures, uh, morals, uh, humans, whatever. And so just on the face of it, it seems kind of like, uh, you know, in our, in our extremely commodified culture, it seems like, well, yeah, of course, like obviously things are overly commodified. Like we're, we're coming up on the Christmas season, the holiday season. And we just had black Friday, right? Black Friday just happened. And so like, there's no better season for us to be like acutely aware of like our commodity culture. However, as you say, there's, there's something to that. However, with Klein, it's the inconsistency that's problematic. How can you find yourself on the left today? And be making arguments that are implicitly uh, have an implicit austerian austerity exactly. bias. When, exactly. we, when what we're trying to do is fight austerity, we're trying to increase the consumption uh, powers of the poor and the working class, you know, across across the planet. So maybe you have a great critique of that in your book. So maybe let's 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 build on that. Probably the easiest uh, way to think about it is um, okay if you're you know wherever you work and uh, if you. If the argument is that we all, so everybody, workers included, we all in the West, or even all humans, we consume too much. If that is if that is the argument, then when the boss cuts your wages, then you will you will consume less. So you should be if you're you're an anti-consumer, it's Naomi Klein or whoever it happens to be, degrowth, all these these other people then you should be celebrating Thatcher and Reagan and the European Central Bank when, uh, when they, they slashed wages, they effectively slashed wages in Greece or Portugal, that, that uh, you are uh, doing the Lord's work because you are yeah, uh, forcing people back to the value systems yeah. and their families, sometimes literally, right? Like forcing people to move in with their families because they yeah, can't absolutely. fucking afford an Ported. apartment. I, I, no, no logo was – How's that for family values? <laughs> no logo was the was the Bible of the global justice movement. But even at the time, I, would, I, I thought it was just awful. Um, the, um, you know, one of the adbusters was the other aspect of this, the, the terrible anti-consumerist magazine. Um, and the argument that was made by anarchists on, on, on campus at the time, I remember, uh, they had a, a buy nothing day. You know, it still, it still happens. It's just, it's the, uh, it's Black Friday that that's your, the day after Black Friday is supposed to be buy nothing day. And uh, while we reflect on the fact that we all consume too much. And I remember even at the time at university when the anarchists were handing out their little leaflets, encouraging us all to, uh, to buy nothing. And, I, you, know, I, you know, at the time, my family was having a real financial crisis. I was, yeah. you know, student loans up to my tits. And, and I was thinking to myself, and it was never enough. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, 
Jesus, I want some finally able to buy a lot more days rather than buy nothing days. And it just yeah. this this contradiction between if you know Naomi Klein will be on a picket line, she will join with workers in, uh, campaigning against austerity, saying, "No, it's absolutely right that workers should have higher wages." And then the next day, she will say that workers are consuming too much. Well. If they get a higher wage, they will consume even more. So there's just there's a, there's this complete contradiction here. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think so. Really, what you're getting at here, I love that story that you just shared. It's it's in your book, uh, one of the opening chapters, and uh, it, it really hints at something that I get at very. Uh, I attack almost on a weekly basis on my show, and it was there in the anti-essentialism series for sure. Is that there's actually uh, there's there's a there's a upper middle class at least mm-hmm. at least upper middle class uh, uh, inflection. Or, or accent, perhaps, yep. in this narrative, which is to say, we all need to consume less. Well, let's keep in mind there are a lot of people here who who can't consume nearly enough. Exactly, absolutely, and particularly in this era. Yeah, Branko Milinovic, the uh, former IMF economist, he recently, just a, a few weeks ago, he did an analysis uh, about. It's a really quantitative uh, estimate of what it would m- really mean. Um, if we as a society globally adopted a, an anti-growth, uh, steady state, not even degrowth, but just a steady state economy, that is like yeah, yeah. no more economic growth. Um, um, uh, so it would require and just a complete egalitarianism um, where everybody earns exactly the same amount. So that, you know, OK, that sounds OK. That sounds OK. But what would that mean? Right. How much would everybody be earning around the world? And then no more. It's about $5,000. And you think to yourself, like, $5,000 a year. How far a year? How far would that go? Yeah. How far would that go? And so, um, what, none of this is to say that we can't have conversations about uh, planned obsolescence or what sort of products should we, pro- we be p- producing? And why is it that we have all these disposable products? Um, uh, that's a di- but that's a different conversation. That's now beginning to have a conversation about the market. That's saying, that's asking, um, why is it that if um, we all know that fossil fuels um, are burning the planet, mm-hmm. um, why are we continuing to produce them? Well, we have, a socialist will, would be able to say quite immediately, well, it's very obvious that uh, so long as a um, a commodity continues to have a an exchange value. Uh, the the producer of that commodity will continue to produce that. The the the, the enterprise must continue to produce it. Otherwise, it will go out of business. They'll go bankrupt. Um, whereas a a planned economy can begin to say, okay, oh wow, um, we've just discovered that fossil fuels did this really really bad thing. Um, we need to phase them out uh, rapidly. Um, if no lo- if the profit motive is no longer the driver of uh, d- ecosystem disruption, ecosystem service disruption, um, we can now make the, the, uh, reor- we can now reorganize society. Uh, we can plan it in a different way. We can produce different commodities. We can say, okay, uh, well, what commodity? Or we're not com- because it would be a society without commodities. But what what good or service now? delivers the same utility to society, same use value to society, but doesn't have this, uh, this detrimental impact. Um, and, you know, we, we, we did that a number of years ago with, uh, um, with, the, with the chemical products that were producing a hole, hole in the ozone layer. We solved that. 
But it wasn't the market that solved it. It was a regulatory intervention in the market that solved that. So we, but it, we switched from one technology to another technology. We that changed no the, had that the logic of, of of consumption, production, exactly. and, and distribution. I mean, the, literally, the state stepped in and said, "Quite literally, yeah, you cannot do this thing anymore." Yep. And in this way, so therefore, and that problem I mean, is now solved. So, or largely solved. We're we're just a few uh, few decades away from the ozone layer completely healing. Yeah. So what happened was that the, the government, the state, stepped in and said, "This is no longer a profitable inter- enterprise." That's essentially what they're saying. They're saying this is no longer a profitable enterprise because we're not going to allow you to do it at all. And so the, the the I think the real the real stakes of your argument here is to say that like we need to change the logic of profits and profitability, uh, and we need to move toward a, a kind of uh, a, a production and a social investment that is not oriented towards profitability, That's but oriented exactly, towards exactly right. human uh, human needs. It's the elimination in the the long game. The long game is the elimination of, of profit and the market completely. Um, I mean, that's the load start. Is is that going to happen tomorrow? No. But um, but the same principle, uh, regulatory in- intervention, uh, m- uh, more public services, these that that de- steady decommodification of society. If, um, those are steps along the path towards uh, a complete de- decommodification of society, um, a de- de- democratic decision-making about everything, not just in politics, but the entirety of the economy. But when you begin to, so when you see it that way, it's not as if we have to have a revolution tomorrow in order to, um, uh, to save the planet, but it does hint at the sort of things that we do need to do, which is these, these interventions in the market, mm-hmm. uh, non-market mechanisms, basically. Uh, but that's a di- very, very different conversation to having too much stuff or, Growth. I mean, I find it uh, find it fascinating that um, in the entirety of the book, uh, uh, this changes everything. Um, capitalism versus the climate. And there's not a single uh, sentence in the book that actually talks about what cap- what capitalism is. There there isn't actually any. It, she talks about growth as if uh, capitalism is growth. Now, capitalism is or, or dependent markets. on growth. She talks about markets as though markets tell us something about capitalism. Although I, I, I would argue, a and I, and bit, I have argued, she doesn't really talk very much right. about markets. It's mainly, I would argue it's that markets are, are kind of like a capitalist ideology in and of themselves. And so, if you don't sort of undermine the way that you talk about markets, then then you're sort of giving too much to to capital uh, logic. I would go I would go even farther because, um, I mean, and this is an interesting debate at the moment uh, on the left. Um, uh, amongst very good friends of mine, very good comrades, um, as to the, you know the debate over planning versus market socialism, and uh, the argument that I would make is that okay, even if you have market socialism, you still have actors, you still have enterprises uh, that need to make a profit within a, uh, a socialist market. So they will, if there is a discovery that a particular product that they are producing disrupts ecosystem services. They still, because they operate within the market, they still have an incentive to continue to produce that, and an incentive to lobby the um, the, the government or the state or the, de- the democratic socialist society uh, to allow them to continue to produce that. Because if they don't, then they're out of a job, uh, they're out of a uh, their enterprise closes. Now it's a better system. It is certainly there's there's less uh, there there there's less of a chance of, of this. So I view market socialism as a sort of a, a stepping stone towards right, a transition. Uh, a transition. But ultimately, if you really want to get rid of um, 
the cause of disruption of ecosystem services, it is the profit motive within the market that, that does that. And even market socialism still has that. That's absolutely correct. That, and that's, and I'm really, you elaborated that just beautifully because that, that's more or less what I was getting at when we talk about markets as being this kind of like, well, you know, yeah, there's people doing things and exchanging stuff. That's a market. It's like, no, not, not exactly. Right. Like a market has a more kind of capitalist logic and you explain exactly. this in your, in your book, uh, your austerity eco- uh, ecology book really beautifully. And, and you talk about like depersonalizing and demoralizing uh, capitalism to say that like we are all bearers of our economic positions. And so a mm-hmm. business owner can act ethically and morally towards the planet or towards humans or, or whomever. And uh, however, if they do not obey the logic of capital, the yeah. demands of competition, the uh, pace of work, the prices and extractive technologies that they use or whatever, they will be put out of business by somebody who is more efficient, more effective, more profitable. And and they'll just be really moral poor people, right? They won't be business owners anymore. They won't be able to influence exactly. the economy in the same way. Uh, I was at a uh, I was at a, sort of a climate conference, like a very sort of business oriented climate conference, um, as a journalist in in Brussels. And I remember, I can't remember which company it was. I'm going to say DHL, but maybe it was a different one. Anyway, it was a company that um, uh, uh, basically a private postal service, um, one of the biggest ones in the world. And uh, one of the people who was speaking was there. Um, uh, their environmental officer. And she seemed absolutely a good person. Like speaking to her, she seemed really concerned. She was really brokenhearted about climate change and biodiversity loss. And she just thought it was just so awful, you know, sort of tearing up um, a bit when she, she talked about these sorts of things. And you couldn't, I, I, I didn't feel that it was in any way a, some sort of corporate bullshit. I really thought, you know, this person really cares. And then she also said, but, you know, and so she's doing all these different things within our corporation to, to radically reduce their environmental footprint. And, and it turned out that there were all these different things that they could do that were also profitable at the same time. So it wasn't that wonderful. But she said that, but of course, you know, there's nothing we can do about uh, aviation because, you know, that's the core of our business. We're sending packages around the world and they have to be flown. So there's nothing we can do there. We just have to accept that. They will... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the problem, is that it does not matter how moral you are. It does not matter how how teary-eyed you are about about starving polar bears. If, as a result of the profit motive, you cannot abandon this particular technology, this particular product, this particular commodity. That's right. And so we have to we have to really shed this moralism and we yeah. have to embrace politics. And, and, and what that means is that like you have this beautiful line in your book. It's on page 64 for those who are following along. And you should be. Go get the damn book, people. It's cheap from zero books. Great publisher. Good author. Good time. And this is why. Right. So you, you have a, a, a beautiful passage where you sort of attack these really this maximalist approach that you find on the left when it comes to this thing. They say like, ah, but you can't put a Band-Aid on the system. You know, you got to overthrow it. We can't subtle for these half measures and, and so on. This is reformism. You know, you're just a fucking social right. Democrat and they'll spit at you. Right. And you say those cool, you call them those cool kids sporting full communism. Now t-shirts and clasping <laughs> the latest publication from whoever is the Stalinism, uh, Stalinism minimizing obscurantist continental philosopher of the month, De- deploying the scandalous C word 
and you say those people can fuck off <laughs> the c word there is communism right like there's always like this at this time when you're the book there's always some like you know continental philosopher zizek or about you or whomever or whatever like for better for worse they have good aspects and bad certainly aspects. yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were always like uh, but what if we talked about <gasps> communism like oh that's gonna change everything just fucking say the word and it's you know the game over right like no that didn't work out for us very well but so you're, you're really that was a beautiful line because I, I felt that deep deep in my in my heart and soul uh the full communism now sect uh, who i seriously doubt are listening at this point uh, i don't have any people who still listen it's the, it's the fuck you dad left it's uh it's <laughs> You know, Angel- no, really. The it's, fuck you, dad left. Yeah, it's uh, oh, dad, you can't. You know, you're not letting me use the car on the weekend. You're a fascist. It's the it's that <laughs> sort of. Um, it's it's transgression. Basically, it's about like, ooh, what's the most edgy thing to be at the moment? Yeah, it's to yeah, be a Stalinist. It's to be it, and use the word communism not in its its classical sense, but actually, no, no, yeah, absolutely, Stalin was great. And the, my God, I can't stand these people. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, they're attacking Jacobin right now in a big way. We've we were seeing this in a, in yeah. a very obscene sort of. Yeah, I find it so strange. Um, in 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 my youth, when I went back back in the day, uh, the most transgressive thing was to be an anarchist, and today it seems that the most transgressive thing is to be um, to be a Stalinist. And like, really, guys, really, have you like? Do go and have a read about the uh, uh, the Great Famine, about the purges, um, about uh, about Pol Pot and the Killing Fields. Do have a read. Um, it's there's there's nothing that can be defended here. It is it is the opposite of democratic socialism. It's the opposite of the wor- of, of of the social socially just world that we that we want to build. It breaks my heart because there are a number of people who I would otherwise agree with on other issues, particularly some some matters of foreign policy in a very nuanced kind of way yeah. that I would agree with them in other ways. But then, of course, then they then they sort of shit the bed and, and like praise Robert Mugabe, you know, and you're like, oh whoa, whoa, God. whoa, like like yeah. <laughs> a bridge too far, folks. Like we can have nuance. We can we can like both can be true. Right. <laughs> we, we can we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, um, sure the, the the old Trotskyist slogan of uh, neither Washington nor Moscow during the Cold War. You know, I just try to hold that in my head, that or like uh, the sort of ethic of that in my head at all times. That I can um, I can absolutely be campaigning against um, Islamophobia, and I can also recognize that yeah, ISIS are kind of. A bunch of motherfuckers, you know. Like I'm, it's I'm quite capable of having those two thoughts in my head at the same time. And you know what? Most working people can too. Like most people oh, yeah. are pretty good at this stuff. You have to have your brain thoroughly broken yeah. Yeah. to be able to not just see what's clearly in front of your face. Yeah. And when I think a lot of people in this world, they have just an everyday experience of nuance and 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 complexity. Uh, you have to have your brain broken by these frameworks. And that's really what we're talking yeah. about, you know, in your book. You're saying that this whole, like, this, um, you know, this bio, uh, bio, bio, biopacine? What is it? Uh, biocentrism? Biocentrism is yeah. really just a way in which, like, we abstract humanity completely out of the equation. Now, you tell me how anyone would sort of, like, intuit that from just their everyday experience. Like, this is a, 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 a really, th- like, a, a insidious ideology that has to be learned and projected mm-hmm. and taught. And so I think you're doing a really important – you're doing some really important work in undermining that and, 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 and unbreaking people's brains – uh, when they've had their brains broken by these uh, legacies, I think part of it is um, an an utter dislocation of the left from the working class, and this do- isn't just with respect to 
eco-austerity where, um, you know, if you, if you, if you read the idea that, uh, that we all consume less, uh, it's pretty obvious immediately that, that how bonkers that idea is if you come from the working class. But if you're, some, if you're an academic, I mean, the left has retreated to the, to the, to the academy and, uh, so the um, something that might seem very, very salient um, within the academy, and I say, I say this as somebody who works at a university, so you know I'm yeah, shitting yeah. on myself here, but um, self-hating academic. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, uh, you all you have to do is just go, you know, go to a trade union meeting and uh, uh, just any working class, any working class milieu. And say, oh, so just, you know, I just wanted to check this idea that is really popular in the academy at the moment, degrowth and like anti-consumerism. Just wanted to check here. Like, how would you feel about that? Like earning less? And you would be like, uh, what the fuck are you talking about? We haven't had a fucking raise in 40 years. Um, and you'd be like, oh, oh yeah, of course. Totally. That's a bad idea. I don't mean to mount uh, an unquestioned support of the labor movement when it comes to environmental issues. Cause we, we all know like there there's there, I mean, but that, but once again, though, as I think what you point out is that like the, the the kind of logic, the structural argument that you're presenting would say like, yes, absolutely. The labor movement has not always has seldom actually recently been in favor of, you know, environmental uh, uh, policies that would help, help things. However, that's not because they're bad people. It's because they're caught up in a system that has a set of imperatives that they have to abide by. So the question for us is, and this is really what my show always comes down to, is like Absolutely. how do we develop uh, 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 radical collectivities and, and, and principled policies that can alter the logic and can alter the imperatives of the system because that's how you change large scale society. You don't change uh, folks by, mm -hmm. by giving them moral yeah. bribes and trying to convince them to become better people or more enlightened. We need to change yeah. the way that the, that the machine functions. And I think like that's, 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 that's a, that's a long-term difficult task. Exactly. So let's give, give us a, a couple of things that we can implement now. Uh, to move in this direction, because I think this is where your critics really find you to be right. a very bad socialist. So, yeah, lay this out for us. <laughs> well, probably because I'm I'm a, a fucking a, an apologetic supporter of nuclear power. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I wrote <laughs> the monster. Yes, I wrote. Okay, so I wrote an article for New Republic uh, last year. Was it last year? Yeah, um, um, calling on um, Bernie Sanders to to embrace nuclear power. Um, big supporter of Bernie Sanders, big supporter of, of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, um, and uh, but unfortunately, both of these figures uh, have uh, embraced or just you know they, they have the classic anti anti nuclear power perspective that's just very very common on the left. It's a perspective I used to have myself until I actually read about uh, read about the issue, um, and I and I found that there was a sort of background kind of just I assumed that this was a bad thing, and and then. Uh, I was uh, like, oh, okay, so radiation isn't the issue that we thought it was. So that, so we, our, our understanding of that has changed. That it turns out that you would have is um, um, as much of an exposure to ionizing radiation in a single return of, uh, uh, flight from New York to London as an entire lifetime working within a nuclear power plant. Um, the you know, 
these sorts of things, and and then that okay, yeah, but okay, sure, okay, so maybe radiation isn't the 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 bat the big bad wolf that we used to think it was, and so okay, but what about waste? And then then I find like oh okay, but France reprocesses most of its waste. Uh, Canada doesn't. Canada's nuclear power plants don't, and America doesn't, uh, uh, for the most part. The question then is why, right? There, I'm sure, surely regulatory uh, frameworks. It's just a rate. It's totally um, France does. France reprocesses its waste because it doesn't have a domestic source of uranium. Uh, its source of uranium is in is in West Africa, which is a politically um, unstable mm-hmm. area, and so. They're happy to add a little bit of just a tiny little extra cost. It's, it's not much of an extra cost, but it's, it is a little bit of an extra cost to the electricity that they get from nuclear power because there's, an, there's a cost associated with the reprocessing. In North America, we have the second largest uh, uranium resources in the world in Saskatchewan, in Canada. So it is just cheaper to go and um, dig out some more uranium than it is to reprocess it. And it's it's tiny. It's a teeny teeny tiny uh cost increase it would be completely unnoticeable to 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 any users but it's just that much of an increase that well why do it all and all that we would have to do is we would we could change the regulations and re- just require us to reprocess that and then mo- the thing is most of the waste i mean you you watch the simpsons and you think that <laughs> nuclear waste is this like you know green goo yeah, the, the simpsons uh, this, has broken our brains when it comes i think the last <laughs> really yeah when it comes to uh nuclear power yeah that's that's not what it looks like. It, it just it, it doesn't. Most of the what we call waste is actually just fuel that we. Ninety percent of the the energy remains stored in the um, uh, the, the used fuel. Um, just just it's waiting to be reused. Uh, if we ever introduce a um, a regulatory regime that requires us to reprocess it. Now that's not to say that there is absolutely no waste, but it's it's very small. So for example, I could. The amount of fuel um, um, that I would need to to power my entire life is uh, because um, because it's incredibly energy dense. It's about the the volume of a, a of a can of Coke. Wow! So it's nothing. It's it really is nothing. And we do have mechanisms of 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 uh, of storing that very minimal waste. And even there, you know, there are. Um, uh, Coming online, there are techniques, you know, with thorium that basically all but eliminate even that waste. And then you compare to the waste that um, is produced from solar panels. Um, a lot of heavy metals are involved in the production, and, and where do you know, those come being from? Cleaned up. Where do they yeah. come from? And you know, they and then the reprocessing, they you know end up in, in waste dumps, and then it leaches out into uh, to the, the, uh, the the water system. And here's the thing: is that uh, because the what is toxic is elemental. That is, it's um, it's 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 an it's an element. That's just that's just an aspect of that element. It can't. It doesn't lessen over time. It will always be there. Right. Whereas uh, the thing with with radiation uh, with radioactive waste is that the um, uh, the toxicity uh, or the danger um, diminishes over time. Um, Interesting. So, so there's that, and then, and then, of course, with the third, third issue that everybody. So, one is radiation. Okay, so that's not a problem. Waste. Okay, it turns out that's not a, that's not a problem. Um, uh, with a basic, very straightforward regulatory change, um, and the extent there is any waste, it's very easily um, uh, we can we can totally deal with it. 
um, and it gets less of a problem over time. And then the third issue, the third major issue that uh, people are concerned about with, uh, with nuclear power is meltdown. And so they're thinking Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima, uh, yeah. and Fukushima, of course, is really, really front of mind. Well, you know, even so, first of all, uh, um, advanced nuclear systems have passive safety systems, so this can't happen anymore. Uh, it's walk away safe. Uh, walk away safe. Um, that is to say that uh, if everybody in the building is totally killed, um, then the system on its own will stop working. There's, there's, it doesn't have to, uh, doesn't have to have a human at the, uh, at the switch to make sure that the safety systems continue to, um, uh, to operate. And, and, uh, anybody will say, but yeah, but technology, you know, it doesn't always, doesn't always, uh, work the way we think it does, but this is these passive safety systems. It's, you know, it's basically using gravity. It's, it's uh, without going to the, the detail of it, basically there is no way, uh, under the, you know, laws of physics that um that this can't work it's 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 completely walk away safe it's totally fine now there those those issues have been solved it's like complaining in 2017 about how annoying it is that you have to rewind your vhs cassette before every time that you take it back to blockbuster Nobody does that anymore. That's not how the we just that, so, so. So there's a uh, fundamental like, that's just not ignorance. Ha- there's a fundamental ignorance. It's fundamental about ignorance the about the, basis, ch- the transformation the, the basic, of te- nuclear yes, technology. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that must that be very frustrating. No, yeah. that's, that's quite all right. I mean, it must be a very frustrating experience for you because I, I mean, there are other matters right where I think the left is just really behind. Uh, the narrative, uh, yeah. whether it be technology, whether it be sort of like theory and practice or the, the reality faced by people or whatever else. It's just a very, very Absolutely. frustrating experience. I, as, as a science journalist, but also a socialist, I, oh, it, it, it breaks my fucking heart that, um, uh, you know, I read about Engels and some of the, uh, the great uh, Marxist scientists yeah. of the 1930s yeah. and 1950s. And it was just so common on the left that um, you were up to date. You knew um, about the latest um, developments within physics, within engineering, uh, within mathematics, uh, with, within biology. Uh, you, if you were a socialist, of course you were paying attention to all of that stuff. And today, uh, most of the, the left uh, comes from the humanities, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with the humanities. We need the humanities as well. But you need to have a scientific. You need to have scientific education. You need to have scientific literacy. Uh, capable of risk perception, a good understanding of statistics, um, numeracy to be able to understand some of these things, and it's it just you know when I when I read that the um, even under conventional nuclear power, so not advanced nuclear, not passive safety systems, none of this stuff, just traditional conventional nuclear power, still the number of deaths per terawatt hour. It's, it's, uh, it has nuclear power has the fewest deaths per terawatt hour of any, any energy source in the world. And then, and that, you know, you look at that and, and you sort of, that's a rigorous quantitative understanding of, of the situation. And you, th- and, you know, like as a side note here, you know, what really, like even, even, even worse than even safer than solar. Like, yeah. When you take into account the, uh, the heavy metals, uh, involved mm-hmm. and actually even just 
people putting uh, solar panels on their roofs and falling off their roofs that has an impact. Oh, well, let's forget about the fact that these these elements come from war-torn areas in Africa that have been savaged by yeah. histories and legacies yeah. of colonialism and nationalism and and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. You have you have child you have ch- child labor that's you know sort of going into yeah. these mines and extracting it and and uh, soldiers sort of like lording over it, uh, you know, in various ways, the corporate corporations, exactly. are, transnational corporations are complicit. And so it's just, I think that it's, it's really interesting. We're breaking down in essence, there's a, there's a certain kind of like ideological, a very strong ideological component mm-hmm. to this that we need as good socialists or, or perhaps even as good Marxists, just in terms of methodology of seeing through ideology and getting to the material facts. And if that's not the principle of science, I don't know what is, right? So it's, it's hard for me to see how you can be a socialist uh, without being uh, just totally, uh, uh, totally, you know, um, dedicated to that principle of, of discovery and in, 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 in seeing through ideological Absolutely. The, uh, I mean, the, the, the phrase scientific socialism gets a bad rap, and understandably, because it was that phrase was adopted by, by Stalin um, in sort of like reverse form in which he uh, declared Marxism to be a science, um, that, you know, which, which is absurd. It, in, in Engels' understanding, it was the other way around. It was that Marxism should be as quantitative and scientifically methodological as, 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 as any field of science, that it should be as rigorous as that, that, socio, that we should have a science of society, that sociology, sh- that we should be able to understand the laws of society, how they work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what Marx attempted to do. Not, just, not to declare ex cathedra that Marxism is a science, but that Marxism should aspire to the very best of science. Right, right. And I really, really feel that that's been well, lost. There's an anti, there's a knee jerk um, anti scientism. And now look, okay. Yes, I've, I've yeah. read the books. I've sat in the graduate seminars and I know all the debates yeah. there. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a catastrophic history of this kind of scientism, scientism being like this, uh, this sort of like thoughtless, uh, 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 non-dialectical, cynical deployment of pseudoscientific, you know, statistics, figures, concepts, whatever, Absolutely. to brutalize yeah. humanity. For sure. Right. And I think. But of course, that is actually, that is not science. That is not being scientific enough. Mm-hmm. It's not actually, it's, it is not acknowledging uh, biases. It's not recognizing uh, it, it um, within your, uh, within your experiment or within your assessment, within your observations, there's a set of assumptions, capitalist assumptions quite often, or, or, or colonialist or racist assumptions or sexist assumptions that you're bringing to the table that you're not even recognizing. And so rather than, so instead of saying, um, because scientists have been sexist, because scientists have been colonialist or supported the colonialist project, therefore science is, is sexist. Science isn't recognizing these things. Like, no, 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 actually... You're not being scientific. Those people have not been scientific. Yeah, when enough. Charles Murray or uh, you know any of these yeah. any of these guys, yeah. a softer Mike Cernovich or something like that, appeals to like IQ science. We don't say, well, this is why science is bad. We look at them and say, that's not science. You're making this shit up. That's not rigorous. And I'm going to tell. I'm going to use science to demonstrate why. Right. Like so. Like I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, why. well, I'm a little bit. I'm. I'm. I'm a bit more comfortable with um, IQ assessment these days than what it used to be. Um, I think a lot of the critiques in the 1970s mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. some Marxist uh, scientists um, um, were absolutely fantastic. Right. 
Um, and I think um, the field has learned from that and, embr- and embraced those uh, those critiques and said, okay, yeah, we weren't being scientific enough. And uh, now there's a lot of, uh, you know, Freddie DeBoer has written some fantastic stuff I was, was going to go there, right? Sadly, uh, like Freddie DeBoer yeah. sort of uh, vanished oh, from uh, public intellectual status due to his uh, struggle, uh, mental, very public, I should say, uh, mental health struggles. Uh, big supporter yeah. of Freddie on the show. Um, I love that man. He's taught me a lot and yeah. I miss him. I do. And I, I wish Absolute him well. Magic. And I know a lot of my listeners do as well, but Freddie's one of his final, I think, masterworks, I think, uh, for his, uh, sort of like policy blog was to demonstrate that actually there's, there's a, we need to look at IQ and, and, and IQ science in a very nuanced and careful yeah. way. And that's what, that's what science is, right? Not producing, yeah. not producing things that are sort of like warm and fuzzy and easy and have, uh, you know, sort of like, um, uh, ready-made political objectives, right? It's that whole political expediency argument, right? Never sacrifice absolutely. clarity for political expediency. So, and and that these people haven't paid attention. The argument against IQ that these people keep making, well, that was right in the 1970s, but you haven't been following the field. And Freddie had Freddie, Freddie had precisely because he was so concerned uh, about um, uh, these sorts of. Uh, misapplications of of this stuff within education, which was his field, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and he was like, "Dudes, like you just you're, you're so out of date. You haven't been following. You haven't been far, following the literature." Um, and, and this comes back to what what we were talking about a, a moment ago about um, it is the responsibility of a progressive, never mind a socialist, to keep up to date, not just with everything that is happening within the realm of politics and sociology and 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 uh, and and celebrities, fuck, you know, whatever, the humanities, arts, but also you, it is your duty. You need to be uh, keeping up to speed with what is happening within the sciences. Yeah. So let's let's we're going to move on from that. We'll return to some of this stuff in the B side. Undoubtedly, sure. we're already at uh, almost an hour and a half, which I've enjoyed the hell out of this. <laughs> Uh, time flies when you're really getting into the into the weeds with this stuff in a good way. I know my audience is going to love it. So I got to tell you, man, I've had some people like early on, like, man, your shows, your episodes are too long, bro. And now I got people saying like, man, I have a two hour commute. Could you make your episode longer than an hour? I'd really appreciate it. So they're going to love this shit, man. We're really giving it yeah. to them. You're getting yeah. a bang for your buck. So your your upcoming work, which has a lot of uh, you know overlap and stuff like that, it's called The People's Republic of Walmart, give us like, let's do a five minute overview of what that argument is and where it comes from. And then we will carry that over onto the B side for my patrons. If you are not a Patreon supporter of the Dead Pundit Society, you're going to be really missing out folks. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at $5 a month or more and get access to this B side as well as all my other stuff. So let's launch a five minute uh, preview into your argument in the People's Republic of Walmart. Sure. So it, it, in many respects, it um, it comes out of um, some arguments, I'm, well, not some, but the main argument that I make within austerity ecology and the collapse porn addicts, uh, which is about uh, that it's not growth that's the problem, it's the market. Um, and uh, therefore, and so the response to that is democratic planning, not central planning necessarily, although some might need to be centralized, but democratic planning. And I sort of like very vaguely hinted what this, this might mean. Um, and, uh, how, and I mentioned that, you know, we have to be, we have to absolutely be alive to concerns about statism and bureaucracy and stuff. But I just sort of broadly sketched that out, um, without going into much detail. Um, with this book, um, 
which is not primarily a book about um, about climate change or biodiversity loss or, or environmentalism, although there is one chapter that that is about um, planning and and the Anthropocene. Um, it actually does exactly that. It, it now goes into much more detail about well, what is what is democratic planning? It's a primer for um, um, it's a primer for the 21st century on, um, on, on, on conversations about planning that have happened over the last hundred years, uh, sometimes known as the economic calculation debate, sometimes known as the socialist uh, calculation problem. Um, and, but in the con- and it, we, I mean, so it's, uh, it's co-written with Michal Rosworski, who's a, who's an economist. Um, I bring to the table as a, um, I guess as a science writer, a little bit of um, sort of understanding of um, complexity and um, uh, com- computer science and that sort of stuff. But but it's also really, it is very much a history and uh, economic book, but a, a popular one, we hope. Um, uh, this conversation about the calculation problem has happened very much in... Um, academic papers and academic conferences. And so, so we basically are taking that conversation out of the academy, out of academic journals and popularizing and Soviet it and history telling, and, and, and so on. Yeah. And Soviet history yeah. and all this sort of stuff. Uh, we're not so much saying anything completely brand new as just retelling the story for, uh, for a modern audience. I mean, I, I say that we don't say anything new. I do think uh, basically we take the, uh, the reason why we call it the people's Republic of um, Walmart is I do think we are saying something new here where we're basically riffing off of Frederick Jameson's joke about how Walmart is this amazingly socialized um, um, uh, uh, enterprise socialized in the sense of bringing so many different humans producing things all over the planet together in a common enterprise, common, common project. Uh, one of the most socialized um, 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 endeavors ever. It's it's the largest corporation in the world. Um, if I'm remembering my stats correctly, it is the largest employer in the world after the People's Liberation Army in China. Um, if it were a uh, if it were an economy, if it were a state, if it were a country, it wouldn't be in the G7, but it wouldn't be far off. Top it, twenty uh, GDP it would have or something 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 like, something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. Remarkable. Um, it's remarkable. Um, it it is a larger economy than the Soviet Union at its height. So, you know, the argument historically from the right uh, and from Marxist so, Marx, uh, Marx, uh, market socialist has has always been that um, uh, economic planning. It might work at a very small scale, but the minute that you get to any very, very large scale, there are simply too many variables uh, involved uh, for there to be rational planning. You would have to have an army of bureaucrats uh, to, uh, to to be able to replace that very, very amazing thing called the price signal within the market that encapsulates all the variables um, uh, within the market, uh, produced by all different commodities, all different aspects of transportation and, uh, hiccups in transportation, all that, that, all that magically is encapsulated in the price signal. Well, as we know from, from climate change, it turns out there's a whole range of different, um, uh, variables that are not encapsulated in the price signal. Uh, so, you know, we talk a little bit about that, but, um, we, Walmart seems to be an argument against that. It says that, well, actually, 
um, you don't need to know absolutely every uh, variable, describe every variable in an economy. If, the, if this economy is so large, Intern- while it operates within the market, internally, it's entirely planned. It's a, it's a planned economy. It's not a democratically planned economy, but it is, it's a hierarchically planned, planned economy, but it is a planned economy. And so you begin to think like, okay, so theoretically, socialism doesn't work. Like in theory, socialism doesn't work because there's simply too, too many variables in, involved. But in practice, it does seem to work, which is a sort of, you know, a nice little inversion of the, the old argument from uh, the sort of cliched argument from the right that, well, communism is all very well and good in practice, but it, it's all very well and good in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. Well, we're sort of inverting that. Communism does seem to work in practice, even if it doesn't work in theory. Um, so that's, that's our opening gambit. And we look quite deeply into um, what is it about Walmart um, that allows them to do this. We compare it to Sears and the, the, the collapse of Sears and how the, the CEO, um, you know, when, when he took over Sears, uh, he was such a, a randy and such a, such a fan of Ayn Rand that he looked in, inside his, his corporation and he said, oh my God, this is a planned economy. This is socialism. This is absurd. And he so believed in the market that he created an internal market within Sears. And he set uh, department against department, um, introducing competition within, within the organization. And he destroyed it. It utterly destroyed uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the corporation because there was no rationality. There was so much duplication um, it was, uh, it, it was, it was utterly absurd. Anyway, so we go into the uh, details about that. So those are ni- two nice counter counterpoints. Uh, Walmart, this co- planned corporate economy, and Sears, uh, this, uh, the probably most successful corporation ever, and Sears, this utter disaster of a of a corporation uh, that decided to abandon um, uh, pl- central planning, um, and then we move on. To, so those are kind of interesting, weird little bits of political jujitsu that we've done there where we're, we're telling people, Hey, psst, socialism's already, you know, like bits of it are already um, right in front of us and we aren't even noticing it. That's not to say that Walmart is socialist, but, it, but the argument that um, planning couldn't happen at a very large scale suddenly is belied by the existence of Walmart. So then the argument has, has to be, that oh well it just can't be democratically planned and then that oh that's that's a bit that's a bit worrisome you're beginning to say that uh planning does work but only if it's anti-democratic only if it's hierarchical it's like well why is that why why is that the case and it turns out it's you know it's it it doesn't have to be the case and so then we move into a conversation about the the national health service in the uk which is not merely a public health service like Canada, where the it's single payer, where the state pays, but most of the sort of infrastructure, let's say, um, is private, or large chunks of it are private, but it's fu- publicly funded. Um, it, with the U- with the NHS, historically, the entirety was nationalized. So doctors are civil servants; they're they're public, you know, they're public servants. Uh, nurses are public servants. Uh, hospitals are owned by the state. Clinics are owned by the state and all of this stuff. Now, we use uh, the NHS to uh, pivot away from a conversation about corporate um, central planning to democratic central planning, but then investigate, well, is that really fully democratic? And they, this is where we begin to have a conversation about statism and the state 
and we acknowledged that yeah no it, there, it isn't it, uh, uh, while it was an absolute jewel of the welfare state uh, jewel in the crown of the welfare state as 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 John McDonnell, um, the shadow, the UK child, shadow chancellor, calls it the, sh- the jewel in the crown of the, the, the British welfare state in the post-war period. It's absolutely true. Um, it's not. It's not perfect. Um, there were problems about um, the sort of technocracy within it of doctors and planners knowing better than local communities about what they should and shouldn't. So have. Leo Panitch, in my interview with him. Uh, talked about this as conceptualized this as, as some of the problems and pitfalls of what the left calls nationalization. And so, yes, so exactly. people say nationalize X, Y, or Z, Z, Z right? Uh, whatever it may be. And it's like, well, not entirely. Because what you're explaining yeah, there, it absolutely. sounds like, is some of the pitfalls and perils and contradictions of the logic of nationalization. It doesn't give people uh, enough democratic input. And, and now what you see is because they don't feel connected democratically to the institutions, they're not going to fight as hard to defend them when the right comes to take yes, them away. Yeah. They're going to be more open yeah. to that, right? And so – And anyway, I'm enjoying the hell out of this, but we're going to have to cut this short. Let's continue this over on the B side. We're going to continue the argument of the People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, there's an, a great article that appeared in Jacobin a little while ago. Uh, it, it prefaces these are the, this kind of position in, in your book that's up that's forthcoming, uh, written with your co-author uh, Mikhail uh, Rozworski. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, Mikhail Rozworski, yes, very smart guy. Uh, that that article is called "Planning the Good Anthropocene," and you can see there's a lot of uh, uh, carryovers from uh, the the first book into the second. Uh, you open that piece saying, "What is profitable is not always useful, and what is useful is not always profitable." And if we're going to develop a con- an economy and, and a socialist ecology that uh, is uh, serves human needs and the demands of the Anthropocene, then we're going to need to develop a way to plan society. So, damn, I've enjoyed the hell of this, Lee. Uh, Me too, yeah. are of the same mind on a lot of things. I really appreciate you coming on the show. You uh, uh, you, you do exactly what I said earlier, is you, you never sacrifice uh, conceptual clarity or scientific accuracy for political expediency. We need a lot more. Well, shucks. We need a lot more Lee Phillips uh, in the world. And uh, I've been criticized for being overly flattering uh, to my guests, but fuck that. I think you're great, and I appreciate the <laughs> work you you're much. doing. I think you're awesome, too. My God, you are a hey, fucking thanks, uh, breath of fresh air. You're an anti-essentialist uh, series. Uh, uh, yeah, this, this summer was, oh, what a tonic. Uh, what an amazing series that was. Good. And I mean, I started the show because I said, hey, I know a bunch of people I'd love to chat with, and and uh, and uh, we, we've got a good thing going here. So it's called Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts, out from Zero Books. Pick it up. Look out for his book, The People's Republic of Walmart, coming out uh, next fall. Uh, Lee Phillips, thanks for joining us on the Dead Pondus Society. Uh, it was great to be here. And that concludes this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Thanks again to Lee Phillips. Everybody should run out and pick up his book, it's called Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Porn Addicts. It's out from Zero Books in 2015, a couple of years ago now, but it is still highly relevant to the political moment in which we find ourselves, particularly under uh, Donald Trump, the chud-in-chief that he is, climate denier and all the rest of it. It's important, uh, even though the right is terribly wrong about uh, their denial of climate change, 
it's it's even more important now. I would say that we get our arguments uh, correct. We 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 have to have scientifically grounded, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric and discourse in order to try to win folks to a more principled position when it comes to. I don't know, not collapsing into the sun. I don't have a lot of optimistic words for you, but I, here's here's some optimism. The B-side uh, is fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation that I had with Lee. So if you liked this show, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at $5 a month to get access to that B-side with Lee Phillips. It's going to be dropping in a couple of days. You're also going to get access to hours and hours and hours of additional interviews over there on the Patreon well worth $5 a month, I would say. Uh, my guests are killing it. Uh, they've been killing it in 2017. I've got a lot of exciting things coming up in 2018. I just completed an interview with Delegate Lee Carter, the infamous DSA member who won a seat in the uh, Virginia legislature uh, in the past, uh, I guess back in November, he did that and really ushered in a wave of progressive and open socialist candidates that are going to be taking office here in local and state legislatures in the coming weeks. And that interview is fire. He is such a passionate guy. The authenticity is just seeping out of every pore. And so you're going to really enjoy that interview that I, that I did with Lee Carter. I'm going to be releasing that either next week or the week after. Haven't quite decided yet. Uh, it may coincide with his, with his uh, swearing in or whatever they do to elected officials at the state level. Uh, we'll see. But we're going to talk about what it means to govern the state from the left. Many of you who listened intently to my, to my series on state theory labor in the capitalist state, will know that that is an ongoing concern of mine. The Bernie Sanders movement uh, is, is very uh, exciting. It's hard to say exactly where that's going to go it, from this vantage point. Uh, I don't want to make any bold predictions because you know what they say about those. Those are meant to be, meant to be uh, dashed upon the rocks of, of reality. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's, it's quite clear that we're going to see uh, this trend of socialist and progressive candidates Uh, being swept into office continue and it's only going to intensify so the question now for us is not only how do we get these people elected but what do they do while they're in office right what kind of broad-based social strategies are we going to need what kind of policies can they deliver what kind of policies should they deliver how will they form coalitions with more mainstream elements without losing their progressive and socialist edge these are crucial questions and lee carter really helped me think through uh, some of these things so look out for that folks lots of good stuff coming your way in 2018 thanks everyone for your support whether you are a patron or not i do deeply appreciate it share the show on twitter tell your friends on facebook phone up your grandma Uh, let's spread the new left agenda into the new year all right see you next week dead pundit out (laughs) oh this you crazy mother (laughs) 